We are December 22nd, and you are listening to the Basu and Godin Notebook. I am Marc-Antoine Godin with Arpin Basu, who's talking to us live from Chicago. An easy trek, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's been quite the trip, let me tell you. So, well, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, this being, this being our, our final show of the year, we're going to take a little holiday break here, guys, but... Uh, Uh, I'm gonna. Is it Festivus today? No, When's it's Festivus? tomorrow. But you can start your grievances today. Okay, so I, have some, I have an airing of grievances to to, to top this show with. So, and it's not a grievance, honestly. It's just like you know, today back to back travel on a back to back is always tricky, especially when you're not on the charter. Um, so I thought I was going to be really smart upon arriving in Chicago. I go, I'm walking to where the Ubers get. You get picked up on an Uber and I see, oh, there's a train downtown. It's fast. I was like, okay, well, let me see if I have a station near my hotel that's on this train. And so the O'Hare station is on the blue line. And on the blue line, there's a station called Grand. And then I look on the Google Maps. I see my hotel is two blocks away from Grand Station. Perfect. I'm like, perfect. I'm going to get on this train. I'm going to be you know, ecologically responsible or environmentally conscious and, and, and not take a car. I'm going to take the train and uh, I'll probably get there sooner. Yeah, sometimes sometimes out. using the train in, in Chicago can be faster. It can be faster, yeah. yeah that probably would have been. Except in Chicago, there are two stations named Grand. Oh. One is on the blue line, which is where I got off. One is on the red line, which is not where I got off. That wasn't super far. It was about a kilometer and a half. Also, my phone has died in the meantime, so I don't have my map. <laughs> and then... Uh, it's only a kilometer. So I go into a Starbucks, I plug in my phone and I see it's only a kilometer and a half away. Ah, no big deal. It's raining a bit, but that's not too long of a walk. And like two seconds into that short, but longish walk, uh, one of the wheels on my suitcase busts. So for this one time I have to walk a kilometer and a half with my suitcase, <laughs> I got a busty wheel. So I am finally here with you. Yeah. You patiently waiting for me to get to this hotel room. I am here. Um, And happy to be talking to you. I knew my it. Friend, I knew it uh, would just happen. Before Christmas. I knew it would happen. I told you. I said. I gave I you a time. You did, and you yeah, said, "No, no, I'll make it up." Okay, fine, <laughs> fine. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you said you're going to O'Hare, man. Yeah. You got to factor in O'Hare. And honestly, it would have been. I would have beat that. I would have hit my time more or less, maybe a little later, um, were it not for this this subway station snafu. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I was really, I was really on it. I was proud. The flight was a bit early miraculously coming into O'Hare, which almost never happens. And, uh, but anyhow, I'm here now. The Canadians are about to play the Chicago Blackhawks. By the time you listen to this, they will either be playing the Chicago Blackhawks in the, they're in the process of playing the Chicago Blackhawks. So they'll have played the Chicago Blackhawks, but we're not so worried about that. It's, it's, it's really talking about what the biggest trend with the Canadians right now, as far as I'm concerned, um, is the play of Nick Suzuki and the play of his line. The play of his line, yeah. Which just, conti yeah, I, which just continues to carry, to, to drive the bus. For sure. I think there's a Suzuki and, and Slavkovsky stand out probably more than Caulfield right now, but as a line, they're, they're in their own stratosphere compared to the all three other lines. Uh, it, yeah. it really, it was really obvious against the Minnesota Wild Uh, I brought up the fact that uh, in, in previous episodes, the fact that they had to make sure during home games that they would that Martin Saint Louis uh, 
would try to hide that first line from top opposition, which you cannot do on the road. And even though they were facing, you know, whether it was Kaprizov or Eriksson Ek, but all the, the best elements of the Minnesota Wild, they still clearly came out on top when it came to, to, to shot shares, uh, high danger chances and whatnot. They were super effective. They scored a goal. Yeah, absolutely. They were effective on the I mean, power play, yeah, too. Yeah, but their expected goal number was outrageous. I mean, I think Suzuki was at hovering around 80%. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that th th there's two things there. So first, there's, there's Slavkovsky. You, you can tell that, you know, his it was his development or his sudden, you know, jump ahead was, was not just a fluke. It seems like he's sustaining it. But now it's also... Nick Suzuki is really taking it to heart and proving that he's a bona fide first line center and that he can carry his own line and help carrying this team. And it's even though the the the, the stats may well actually the the actual number of goals and, and assists might not suggest that he's really developing into a lot more than he was before. There are other statistics mm -hmm. that that proof that he is. And I, I thought you wrote a very interesting piece uh, on the athletic the other day when you brought up the, 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 the micro stats that the Canadians are tracking through Christopher Boucher, their, their head on show of uh, the analytics department. Uh, so can you tell us more about the OGPs and how they relate to Nick Suzuki? Well, so, so here's the kind of the backstory. So at practice in Minnesota, Um, I'd asked to get some time with Nick Suzuki and, and Canadian's VP of communication, Chantal McAvey said, sure. And so the purpose of my sit down with Nick was that I had noticed that he was basically right on pace to produce exactly the same number of points as he did last year. And so we're already worth, you know, over a third into the season. It's, it's a significant sample size. And I thought, you know, I, my premise was that, you know, we've been saying on this show and I've written it, I've said it that this is kind of the year for Nick Suzuki to show what he will ultimately be. Not that he's going to stop improving, but when you're 24 years old, you're in your fifth season, generally you are what you are, mm -hmm. you know? And I thought he should get the opportunity to answer that since I've been saying it so much. <laughs> so I was my, my intention when I sat down and first off, he said, you know, I don't think I've reached my ceiling. I think I've still got a lot of improvement to do. I find, find areas in my game that I need to get better at all the time. But as far as the stats are concerned, as far as the points are concerned, he's like, I don't look at those numbers. I don't look at results numbers is what he said. I look at other numbers in terms of what I'm generating, what I'm creating, and what kind of offensive opportunities. And so then I start kind of delving into that. And he, eventually he gets to OGP, which, you know, he kind of a loose – He gave me kind of a loose definition, but, you know, basically there's there's eight elements to OGP, passes to the slot, and yeah. hang on, let me just pull it up. Yeah, here. so Sorry. OGP, so the just, slot just for our, uh, the, the benefit of our, uh, of our uh, listeners, OGP is Offensive Generated Plays, which is... Offense, offense Generating Plays. Yeah. Offense well, Generating Plays. So plays that generate offense, yeah. basically. It's a very, very self-explanatory title. Um, so anyhow, his... OGP in the month of December was was really high. And so basically OGP has, has eight elements to it, passes to the slot, passes off the rush, passes four one-timers, carries to the slot, loose puck recoveries in the slot, shots on goal from the slot, outside shots for generator rebounds, and any goal that does not apply to the previous seven categories. So 
a goal from outside. There's a lot of in the slot into this, huh? There's a lot of in the slot, and I think that's what Nick Suzuki took to heart. Like this, so this happened like kind of at the beginning of December or somewhere around there. Adam Nicholas, the Canadians' director of hockey development, came to him with this with this stat Mm. and kind of showed who the top players are in the league in this stat and said, you know, look at these guys. Like they're all performing super well. Um, If you want to be in that group, then these are the kinds of things that you got to do to be in that group because that will naturally just lead to points organically. You won't have to think about points even. Just think about this. And, you know, usually we hear guys say, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think of the numbers or I don't, but like Nick actually said, he thinks about this before the game, the, how he needs to get pucks to the slot goals are scored from the slot. Whether it's me taking the puck to the slot, whether it's me passing it to the slot, whether it's me setting up one timers, I need to be focused on this. And you look at the game last night against Minnesota. I mean, Nick scores a tap in. It was on the power play, mind you, but you know, he's right in the crease. Even Slavkovsky's tying goal, who's in the crease next to him or just behind him, actually, is Nick Suzuki. And, you know, and he's he's getting pucks there. And so, you know, prior to the game in Minnesota, and actually prior to Wednesday night's games, to be even more accurate, Nick Suzuki was, I think, 17th in the NHL in OGP. And that's for he throughout was right- the season, right? No, no, no. Or that's for just for the month of December. December. Just for the month of December. Because yeah. overall for the season, when I was talking to Nick at that time, he was 44th in the league in OGP, which is not quite first line. Well, I mean, it would be first line. If you just filtered out centers, maybe you'd be in the top 32 center-wise. Yeah. But he actually definitely would be. But but it's, you know, but he at the beginning of December, he was 66th in the league. So he's made a big jump. Right. And... And this is just, I think it's very reflective that, you know, everyone's like, oh, nerds with your analytics and all this stuff. But this is like, this is a stat that just gets it into, got it into this player's mind. I'm not saying it would with everyone. Got into this player's mind to just be hyper-focused on that one area of the ice. And he's actually translating it into his game on the ice. And it's just a great way of showing how analytics don't have analytics can be married with the actual game on the ice and how it's played and if they're applied properly. And so this is just one example. Yeah. And what's interesting with that also is that we tend to think of statistics as results, whereas these statistics, OGP is, is a statistic that's a process, process statistic. So paying attention to that, a, a player would say, Oh no, no, I don't care. I don't watch. I'm not interested in those statistics. Man, you're missing a lot because it tells you mm-hmm. about your process. And that's what you should be focusing on. If you think that the results are not the reflection of how you play, well, these stats are the reflection of how you play. And it's interesting also that Nick Suzuki took it to heart and started working on, uh, you know, uh, increasing the number of plays that he would do in the slot. At the same time that Martin Saint-Louis started saying, you know, guys, we need to go more on the inside. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not a coincidence. The, Martin Saint-Louis, mm-hmm. even though I remember earlier in the season when I talked to him about analytics, he said, you know, you, you got to take, take some and leave some. My eyes rarely lie to me. Uh, th- the fact remains that he pays attention to that stuff. And 
a, a guy named Nick, Nick Suzuki, who's a very cerebral guy, will say, okay, well, how can I apply it to my game? And he went to, obviously, he went to OGPs for that through the help of Adam Nicholas. And also, I mentioned Chris Boucher because he's the one who developed that, that, that metrics. Uh, when he was at Sports Logic, so it's not something. That- no, it was even. It was actually before he got to Sport Logic. Yeah. He developed this metric oh, when he was like- manually when he was manually tracking games. Yeah. like back in the day, okay. you know, it was, it was like you know, I, you and I have a long relationship with him because he used to write a blog mm-hmm. and he used to he used to track Canadians' games. He had all these cool micro stats about the Canadians. And it was really, at least for me, it was he was the first guy I saw using microstats or developing microstats and actually the word microstat itself, I'd never heard before until, until he started doing it. And so it was back then that he developed this and he brought it with him to sport logic. But through, through the clients of sports logic, more teams got access to it. So how you choose to use it, whether you choose, you use it or not, you're adapted. It's up to any team, but this is not something mm -hmm. that's that only the Canadians use, but this is, This is clearly something that they that they believe in and that is part of their process. And uh Yeah. And and this is just one taste of it. Like this is where like you know, the Canadians have access to a wealth of things like this mm-hmm. and can shape it in whatever way they want with whichever player they want in a way that they feel could or would benefit that player. And so, and plus you need to be receptive to it. I mean, Nick obviously has been, some players probably wouldn't be quite as receptive and, and others would be as receptive if not more so, but you know, it's not enough to just have an analytics department and to have a guy like Adam Nicholas who believes in it so much and can relate it to the players. Um, It just, it has to be used in an intelligent way and you need buy-in from everyone, including the coach including management and the Canadians have that now after years of, of flat out ignoring it, you know, and, and really not believing in it at all. And the key thing is that whenever you hear everyone say like, well, it's not the end all be all. I hear that all the time. That's the term. It's not the end all be all. No one's saying analytics is the end all be all. There's literally no one who is saying the only thing that's important in hockey are analytics, but It would be like saying, uh, well, in baseball, I would say that the guys who manage the pitchers on the, the Tampa Bay Rays yeah. <laughs> probably think it's yeah. the end all, but in hockey, no, there's yeah. not such a dog. In dog. hockey, no. no. And, and to say that because it's not the end all be all, we're just not going to use it is ridiculous. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's just, it's, it's, it's a helpful tool. And, and yeah, and Marty does look at that stuff and, you know, and Chris is, Chris Boucher and then he has a, his apartment. It's a, it's a modest apartment, but it's, it's, he has one. And so it's, it's, it's something the Canadians have successfully incorporated into their player development. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think as we see, and, and listen, it's, it's, it would be wrong to suggest that this knowing about this stat is the only reason Nick Suzuki's playing well, because the reason Nick Suzuki's playing well, like the month of December coincides with how long basically He's been playing with Slavkovsky and Caulfield. I mean, their first game together, I believe, was against Seattle. So that's December 4th. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, it's, to me, it seems like that's the biggest reason is that they found something with this line. But this stat being there just validates in Suzuki's mind. And he doesn't have to look at his point total 
and be like, oh man, I'm not, I'm not producing the way I'd like to be. He looks at that number and he's feeling good about his game and he should be because he's playing super well. Yeah. He's playing really, really well. He's played the best hockey. This is the best little stretch of hockey we've seen from him in a long time, probably dating back to like the playoffs in 2021. You know, this is, this is it's been, a, it's, he's been hyper, hyper effective. Like he was dominant in Minnesota. Absolutely. He really, really driving, like just driving that line, which is dominant. And, you know, it's, so this is before the game against Chicago, obviously, but right now among forward lines who have played at least a hundred minutes at five on five this season, this is according to money puck. Um, Slavkovsky Suzuki Caulfield is the ninth best line in the league and expected goal percentage, uh, which is, which is good. Yes. <laughs> They're better than Gensel Crosby rust. Rust has obviously been hurt for a little bit. That Caprizov line you mentioned, Caprizov Rossi and Zuccarello was hurt last night. He didn't play, but that line is, is below them. Uh, the most surprising line on this list is 14th. Joshua Bluger Garland in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 14th, but otherwise it's a who's who. Like, honestly, like if you look, if, like, why would you not want to be on this list? Like number one is Hyman McDavid, Nugent Hopkins. Number two is Trevor Moore, Dano Fiala, Carrier, Wach, Holasar was third, which is a real, another one that kind of jumps out. Um, yeah, except, except, that they've, except that they've been set the, the best fourth line. I mean, Carrier has always been on the best fourth line for years now. And Colasar is super effective yeah. too. Yeah, it's it's Line. Yeah, so, but you know, Palat, Hishier, Brat, Bertuzzi, Tavares, Nat, Nylander, mm. uh, the Kadri line in Calgary, the Barkov line in Florida, the the, the Stall line in, in Carolina. Uh, it's it's good company, you know. And there's there's a lot of good lines that aren't on this list. It's again, it's not the end all be all, but they're they're driving play and they're controlling their share of scoring chances at a level that uh, is first line worthy. So. So the fact that Slavkovsky figured things out in terms of using his body, uh, protecting pucks, uh, getting pucks first, you know, just retrieving and being so mm -hmm. effective at that, it's, it was clear that this is something that was an element that was, that Suzuki and Caulfield needed, that they need a guy who could do puck retrieval, not necessarily always be F1. You discussed it, uh, you know, in, in a previous episode, the fact that he could be just as effective in, in, you know, along the boards in puck protection or, or in takeaways as an F2 or an F3. But mm. the fact that he's, there's clearly a switch that's been turned on and all of a sudden he's this monster of possession. Uh, yeah. How, how, how big an effect do you think that it has on the other two and in their, ability to spend ozone time like galore well i mean it's, 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 it's a direct correlation i mean it's like it's there's no there's no denying that it's his combination of his feet and his his understanding of how to use his body to separate the puck from the from the puck carrier mm. it's not a matter of him going and killing people along the boards i mean he does that occasionally but that's really not what he's doing but he's being physical in the sense that he is aggressively arriving at the puck. He's taking the correct angle to cut off the puck carrier. And once he gets there, he separates that guy from the puck. I mean, with relative frequency. And once he does that, he puts the puck in a good spot where one of Suzuki or Caulfield can go get it. And the more time, the more time Suzuki specifically has with the puck on a stick in the offensive zone, the more that OGP is going to go up 
because he's going to get pucks to the slot and he's going to end Caulfield's going to start getting more shots. Yeah. And so it's, it's really, and the thing is that Caulfield's doing that stuff too, but it's not as noticeable because he's obviously he's not quite as successful at it. Um, but he is doing it. He's doing it in his own way. And it's, and, and, and if he gets a little bit better at that, it'll just make this line better. And that's what, you know, that's what they're focused on with him is him making plays that get the Canadians, the puck. Yeah. either on the defensive zone or in the offensive zone to continue possession. But it's, it's yin and yang. It's, 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 it's a direct line from Slavkovsky getting good at that to all of these other things improving as a result because it extends their shifts in the offensive zone. I mean, in Minnesota, I mean, they played in the offensive zone practically the whole game, right. and they were the only line to do so for the Canadians. I mean, it's, it's funny. If you look at the expected goal numbers from that game or any number, really – shot attempts, it doesn't matter. You look at anything out of that game at five on five, and it just, it's a cliff. Like Suzuki, Slavkovsky, and Caulfield yep. are at 79, 78, and 77 in expected goal percentage. Gouley and Barron were at 52 and 50. And then the next person is Mike Matheson, who I thought had a good game. He's looking really good. Uh, he's at 35.2. And then it just goes down from there. The Canadians had... Seven players below ten percent in expected goal percentage. You rarely see that. That's terrible. Seven. That's terrible. Yeah, it's it's outrageous. Yes. <laughs> so it's yeah. So so and I think this is a nice segue to to our next topic because this we just talked about what was going right for the Canadians and the the, the good thing is that we're talking about the best players on the team were playing mm-hmm. well, so that's encouraging. But if we look at others uh, other aspects. Uh, Mainly the depth of this team up front, it's it's really starting to be an issue because you can tell that the 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 way of the long term absences of of Doc of Newhook of Arivipina is really taking a toll on the other guys because there are some there are some lines that are uh, outmatched on some nights, and you've got a fourth line that is. That doesn't get the trust of Martin Saint Louis. Uh, night after night, you know, you'll have Mitchell Stevens, uh, Jesse Olonen getting six, seven minutes a night. Even though mm-hmm. uh, Emil Einemann got his first taste of the NHL against the Minnesota oh, Wild. For the record, for the record, sorry to interrupt, but for the record, it is Heinemann. Okay. His name is pronounced Heinemann. So for everyone out there, but I asked him. Yes. Uh, this, this is credit to Brian Mudrick on TSN. Who let me know? And then after the game, I checked with them. Yes, it is Hayneman. So, okay, sorry, sorry. Carry on. Yeah. So Hayneman yeah. played, uh, you know, a tad less than six minutes yesterday. Uh, but the thing is, Martin Saint Louis doesn't have any other guys to play, and it's a good thing that you've got Sean Farrell and Lias Anderson who are coming back to play uh, tonight for the uh, for the Laval Rocket. Because potentially those are guys that you could call up and say, okay, they're deserving of a chance to play Montreal mm-hmm. and just push these other guys. But, you know, whether it's, it's Yoel Armia, that fourth line or, or other guys that will have, you know, so, so games. I mean, Christian Dvorak was, was abysmal against the wild. Ah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I find that the lack of depth really is putting a lot of pressure on the top guys to perform because, and the other ones don't really have any accountability because 
who are you going to replace them with? Whether you know, you, you can you can scratch Pizzetta and say we're going to put Hanneman in, but that's it. That's it. There's no there. Nobody's moving. <laughs> well, what's funny about it to me is that when we started the season, this was, and I didn't disagree. I actually fully agreed with him that the, the Canadian strength was their depth up front, mm -hmm. right? Um, injuries have obviously led to that no longer being the case. I mean, you take Doc and Newhook out. Um, those are two top six spots being lost. Uh, and, you know, Dvorak wasn't there at the beginning of the season. You know, Army obviously was in the minors for a bit. Uh, but it's, it's, and, and so Sally was asked about this, uh, yesterday before the game. And, you know, his answer was interesting because he said, it's, yeah, I'm, they're not playing as much because we're in position to win games more often this year, that more, more than we were last year. Now, you remember this trip last year, uh, not quite at this point, but this was the trip where they lost 9-2 in Washington, I think. They had a 7-2 loss in there. They had like, they were just getting blown out of the water. Yeah. Well, the fact that they're, comp they're competing in games, the fact that they can smell the playoff race still, um, And, and, you know, I think a lot of fans will hear me say that and be like, well, what the hell are they thinking about the playoffs for? This is ridiculous. This is, they're in a rebuild. What are you doing? Well, Marty has, you know, Marty has a responsibility to the, to the men in that room, you know, and, and they believe in that yeah. and he believes in it. And so when they hit the third period and it's a one goal game, which it invariably is, I mean, you know, it's, it was, you know, when you heard him after the Islander game saying, we haven't been in that position of being up four goals in the third period. Uh, they've been in the position of being down in the third period, but more often than not, they're in the game in the third period. It's a one goal swing or tied nine times out of 10 yeah. with these guys. So they get into that situation and he rightly or wrongly just does not trust those guys to get the job done. And, and, you know, bless his heart, Mitchell Stevens, but he's an AHL player, you know, and, and Hayneman has NHL potential. And I think Lonan has NHL potential. And I think Anderson, if he can get up to speed would be an interesting option, not really a typical fourth line type of player, but could be an interesting option to bring up and, and maybe give him a shot at yeah. kind of rekindling or jumpstarting his NHL career, you know, remember top 10 pick formerly. Um, so, you know, you remember Marty talking about all the options he had, everything it was, every answer was, well, we have a lot of options. Right. It doesn't look like they have a lot of options anymore. And no. so, so he's making do and honestly, like, and they don't, and it's not his fault. You know, it's just, you know, that might sound like I'm kind of playing gotcha with Marty with, with what he said at the beginning of the season, but you look at his options and he doesn't have any, he could sort of juggle around the second and third line. Like you, you mentioned that Vorak was awful. I mean, that, that Evans Monaghan Anderson line was awful as well in Minnesota after having, what I thought was a really good night in Winnipeg. Like they played, I thought they played really well. The numbers don't kind of show it, but yeah, they were, they were, they started every period. They had, they had the puck in the offensive zone. Um, more often than not, I thought, even though again, the numbers didn't reflect that, but I thought they had a really good game for checking wise and, and, and having zone time, even though they didn't really generate much shot wise or chance wise, but just spending time in the offensive zone for these other lines can create the type of momentum that the Suzuki line could benefit from if they were to come on the ice and not have to stop the bleeding, yeah, you know? Exactly. And yeah. just continue continue what's going on with the other lines, except 
Minnesota, that's what they were doing. Like, not only did they have a dominant game and played in the Ozone that much, but they also successfully cut Minnesota's momentum once every three or four shifts. You know, it was like Minnesota kind of knew that once, as soon as those guys come on, we're defending. And that's like, that's their best players doing that. That's, that has an impact, you know, it was like Brock Faber, like what a phenomenal game that kid played. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, he was, it was 33 minutes. He's played, I think four of his last five games, he's been 30 minutes or over. Yeah. Uh, just, and, but just smooth, solid, good decisions. But he had to, he had to take them on, you know, more like a lot. And so that has such a big impact, but they need some help. Like that's the thing is they need help in that in that department. You know, you mentioned uh, the Monaghan line. I thought that Jake Evans probably was the most energetic of the three, but maybe that if if they're able to find someone who's got a little bit of offensive potential uh, that could replace him, so that he can help out the two the lower lines, it could m help balance the lineup a little bit. But I, mm -hmm. I, I don't need, mean to, to harp on the guys who, who barely play and, and focus too much, on let's say, on the fourth line. But I really feel, you know, after the game that Pizzetta played uh, against the Islanders and then he was scratched. No, against uh, Winnipeg and then he was scratched. Against Winnipeg. Yeah, against yeah. Winnipeg he struggled and then he was scratched uh, in Minnesota. I'm thinking Pizzetta is the sort of guy who it's the same as last year when the whole of first – half of the season, he was playing with guys who did not fit his style. And now at some point, the Canadians will have to say, okay, well, maybe if we are not the most potent offensive team, can will we build a fourth line that can give some give us something offensively? And because if, if that's the case, and if it's not strictly meat and potatoes, Pizzetta is going to keep being lost. And last year, it's only... Alex Bezil's called up that saved the season, basically. And I feel like we're reliving the same thing again. So when I mentioned the names, the likes of Sean Farrell uh, or, or Elias Anderson or, or you know, even Emil Heinemann, who, just, uh, who was just called up, those guys could give you more offensively than Pizzetta. So what's exactly mm -hmm. the future of a guy like that on your team if, is, if the rest of the roster starts being built differently than to what he can really give. Well, you. I think there's, I think there's an avenue to having a fourth line that Pizzetta would not only fit in on, but would, would probably thrive under like, you know, I mean, if they had better health and if they could put together a line of like, say Evans, HP and Pizzetta, mm -hmm. that could be a line that could create some of that zone time. I was talking about earlier, you know, a fourth line that might not get you goals, But they can go play in the offensive zone a little bit. They can they can forecheck hard. They can they can be physical. They can just possess the puck a little bit more um, than what's currently happening. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but that would take some health. And and you know I think I think Marty prefers having a fourth line like that. Uh, I think he's a bit of a traditionalist in that sense when it comes to the composition of a fourth line. He's He, he wants a line that's physical, that's difficult to play against, but also that can cycle the puck and keep the puck in the offensive zone from time to time, at least, you know, and, and but really that, that hard to play against style is what I think in an ideal world, Marty would want on his fourth line, but it can't just be, it can't be completely at the expense of the ability to play with the puck. Um, the current iteration of it, 
is is more offense there's more offensively bent to it um and yeah i think i'll let me just share something with the, the fourth line because you know Mar- you might think that marty kind of hates his fourth line which but you wouldn't be wrong it seems because they don't play in, in the third period but the other day well, he's skeptical and, you know, towards ulon and and we know why mitch mitchell stephens is there so Yeah. Right. So the skepticism towards Elonen is what I wanted to talk to you guys about. So it's like, so in, uh, in Minnesota, prior to the practice, uh, it's about 20, 25 minutes before practice is going to start. The goalies usually go out early and take shots. And Elonen's always one of the guys that's taking the shots. This time it was Elonen and Haneman. And Elonen's there all the time. And so, but on this day, Marty jumped on the ice at this time, which was unusual. Mm. He doesn't, he used to do that a lot before doesn't really do that much anymore and grabbed Ulan Ulanen and took him to the other end of the ice and started working on something with him. And it was just his, it was a really specific detail about how you take the puck off the boards on a rim. Okay. Whether it's in the offensive zone or the defensive zone, really hyper specific. So, you know, when Marty says Ulanen has got to work on the details of his game in order to get more ice time, he's not just saying that, in order for Lonin to sit on the bench all the time. Like he actually believes it and he's trying to implement it with him and he's trying to get him to improve those details so that he can get on the ice more. Cause I do think he believes in the skill set. Mm. There's just, there's when it's such a, when there's such high leverage situations and a mistake or a turnover will be so costly to his team. It's, it's situations like he was working on with him on Wednesday where instead of getting pinched on the boards and having to battle for the puck and losing that puck battle and the other team getting it and either getting out of their zone or maintaining their, their time in the office in the Canadian zone. Um, by doing this one little detail, you have a better chance of avoiding that battle altogether. It was basically the point. So, so, so it's positioning your body and positioning your, your stick blade too, right? To, to stop yeah, the puck yeah, on the it's, it's, You know, I'm not going to get into the, yeah, exactly. Like instead of using your skate to do it, yeah. it's using your stick, which is something he's worked on with Caulfield. He's worked on it with Anderson. He's worked on it with a lot of guys. But the point being that he's working on it with a guy that everyone would assume that he doesn't trust and he doesn't, therefore doesn't like. It's not true. It's, he needs Ulanen to get things like this squared away in his game so that he can be on the ice late in the third period. What makes me smile is that That specific detail, he mm-hmm. said we worked on that during a morning skate or in last year, this, this week last year, we were in Denver and he worked with that with Jonathan Kovacevic, who could yeah. not believe how specific, detailed and helpful St. Louis was in just giving tips on that part of the game. Uh, and, and that was yes, last that year. was a year ago today almost. And even 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 before that, he so last year. Remember, I did a piece on uh, on Marty's video work. Yeah. Um. So in that piece, Josh Anderson told me about how once a week Marty would grab him, bring him in the room, just him and Josh, and they would look at clips. And this was one of the things he showed Josh. And the very next game, it was in New Jersey. And he didn't remember the clip. He's like, we were playing in New Jersey and I did it. I did what he asked me to do and it worked. And so then I went and I watched that game and I found the clip. And basically he, it, it led to 
instead of him getting pinned against the boards, it led to HP getting a decent transition chance. It wasn't a great chance, but still, he he rushed, he exited the puck. The puck left the zone, mm. and HP skated three quarters of the length down the ice and got a decent shot on net from the opposing faceoff circle or the opposite faceoff circle. Um, but yeah, and then there, were, there was a time he was doing this with Caulfield at some point. It's it's something that he really believes in. Actually, after his scrum uh, yesterday morning in Minnesota, that's when I kind of asked him. I was like, "Hey, what were you working on with Ulanen?" And he sort of reluctantly got into it, but once he got into it, he got into it. He was fully explaining the whole thing. And you got a glimpse of what it's like to be taught by Marty. And you could tell why the players react to that. Because mm-hmm. he he got from he went from being kind of reluctant to talk about it to being fully engaged and fully into talking about it in like that. Yeah. Because he just can't help himself. You know, it's like he's like, this is a detail. He's like, Cooch works on this all the time. Cooch is great at this. Datsuk used to do this so well. And he's, and he, 10 minutes. He went on for 10 minutes about this thing. And myself, Guillaume Francois, and Eric Ingles were just standing there. We we're just like entranced by it. Like, it's just like you're just listening to this. And so when the players say, you know, we really love playing for him and we really love the way he presents things, it's because he's so engaged and he's so enthusiastic. And he, but he's intense, but in a, in a, in a good way, like not in an intimidating way or negative way. It's just like his intensity seems infectious. Like I'm going to be honest with you, man, like a, a quick response would have sufficed. I just wanted to know, cause I, sh- I shot some video of it. I'm going to put it in my piece on Monday. I was like, I just need to explain what was going on. And instead we got like a dissertation on, on this, on this thing, <laughs> on, like on, on how to take pucks off the boards, which was great. It was amazing. Don't, don't think I was, but you know, it wasn't like we kept we kept it going forever. He was he just got so into it that I think he just stopped realizing like he was he was like moving and he had his like those those movements he makes with his hands and he's like going like all this stuff. So we got a little taste of what I think the players get every day. Right. So, but back to a, an earlier point you were making, he shows that he believes in Ulanen by investing all this time in him. And last year, mm-hmm. he was going on and on about how Pazetta could become a better player and he had plans yeah. for him. And he invested a lot of time also after morning skates, especially during the time that Pazetta was an extra. Uh, mm-hmm. So the first half of the season, basically. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm thinking, okay, so he believes in all these guys. And he, he's got faith in all of them, and he's willing to take the time in order to teach them and make them better players. But at some point, I mean, we're talking about fringe NHL players who are knocking at the door of their mid-20s. The question mm-hmm. here is, with all this time and energy from Martin Saint-Louis and teaching guys, would be better served by players who ultimately are identified as having a bigger upside at a younger age and who would show a trajectory of improvement and understanding and applying what they're being taught at a higher rate than those guys, you know? So that's, I'm just, because honestly, this is all great. The fact that, hey, I'm going to take any guy I've got, I'm going to work with him, going to make a better player. Yeah, sure. But if, 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 That guy, if they were doing that, let's say with Emil Eneman over uh, half a season, they they might end yeah. up with better better results than what they've got so far from Ulan. Yeah, and it's you know, I mean, it's 
there's a lot of practices in a year, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, he did, this is just example of one day, but yeah, I think what this demonstrates is even if a young player is not playing all that much, there are benefits to him being in this environment. It's not just Marty, it's Adam Nicholas works with these guys. They do video. Uh, there's lots going on behind the scenes that we don't see, you know? So, and that's true. Um, but that's also true for Caden Primo and Go. Yes, it is. Although I think his case is a little different just because he's, he's sharing a goalie coach with two other goalies. The goalie coach has to be kind of prioritize the guy who's going to play a little bit with his time, but he is, he is getting some time, but I think in, in his case, it is a little different in the sense that he needs to play games. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, whereas, you know, like, let's say Sean Farrell were to come up and then Marty, let's say, and I don't think he will anytime soon. He's going to have to show something else in Laval and there's other candidates to come up. I personally think guys like Sean Farrell, Josh Hua, uh, Kidney, Mayu, mm -hmm. the Canadians want them to spend the whole year in Laval. Yeah. If at all possible. Because otherwise, Josh Wall would be in Montreal right now. It wouldn't be Mitchell Stevens that would be called up, even though he could play center. They could easily have Jake Evans playing center and have Josh Wall playing in Jake Evans' spot. Mm -hmm. So, but they want to keep them in Laval. So, but let's just say, for argument's sake, and Haneman is a good example. If Haneman comes out of the lineup for, for whatever reason, He'll have access to this stuff. He will. He will get better even if he's not playing, and even if he is sitting for the entire second half of the third period, like he did last night in Minnesota. It's, so now, I think your point is fair. Like you know, but it's 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 something to keep in mind that that this is just a glimpse or a snapshot of something that the Canadians environment does for these players. Um, and it's just meant as that. It's just something that I noticed, a bunch of us noticed Wednesday morning before practice. A guy who's having trouble getting consistent ice time, a guy who's Marty has publicly said needs to work on the details of his game, yeah. but didn't just say that. He actually went out and worked on a detail of his game. And this is the kind of details that Marty's talking about when he refers to details. So Ulonen was... Uh, uh... Yeah, I remember earlier in the year, Martin Saint Louis was saying, oh, "I'd be, I would like to find roles for all of my players," and that hinted as, as giving, if possible, uh, a PK role to some of his supporting cast. And and Ulanen yeah. had a bit of a try in the, uh, on the PK, uh, which pretty pretty much ended up the minute that Yoel Armia came back, and you know, even though Yoel Armia was, you know. Sleeping at the wheel yesterday on on a goal. He's got overall in season his expected goals against uh, on the PK is, is roughly half of what Ulone is. So there's a difference there in, in efficiency. But the PK. What the hell was he doing on that goal, man? I, just, I can't I can't get over. <laughs> I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I don't know what the hell he was thinking on that goal. Yeah. Anyhow, I, sorry, I, I don't on. know. He was <laughs> he was there, but not there. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he didn't give much of a he was chance. Not, but me. he was not there. He was nowhere. He was in no man's land. He was like yeah. not guarding anyone. No, he was too high to be guarding uh, Boldy. Mm. He was too low to be taking care of Faber at the top. He was just doing. He was in. He, was he in could no not intercept was, a pass from from his vantage from point. anywhere, and nobody yeah, was no, there absolutely. otherwise. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, in orbit. So anyway, so regarding the PK, because that's where I was going with this. So on the one hand. Yes. 
when the game was on the line against Minnesota and Coca Field was called for a dubious cross checking penalty, an awful cross checking penalty. Just, just the, the officials really had a bad game. Yeah. Anyhow, sorry. So, Carry on. <laughs> so they kept the PK kept the puck. Most of the time, it made sure that they were. Sorry, Wild but how not... did Marco Rossi get an instigator? I'm sorry to interrupt again, but now you got me thinking about the officials. Why did Marco Rossi get an instigator? How did he get an instigator penalty? Just for going up to Gooley and kind of being like, hey, don't hit my guy so hard. And then Gooley decides to drop the gloves and pound him. Mm-hmm. And he got the instigator. <laughs> I've never seen a guy take his glove off second and get called for an instigator penalty. I'm sorry. That's my digression. You carry on. Can I go now? Yes, now you can go. Sorry, I'm, I got it out of my system. Yeah. So, Carry on. <laughs> despite that play in P, on the PK, the big picture is that the Canadians gave up two more goals on the PK and they're trending downwards. When you look in October, their efficiency rate on the PK was 75%. In mm-hmm. November, it went down to 72.7. And right now in December, it's at 69.2 before the game against Chicago. I thought that It could be tweaked and improved faster than the power play. But honestly, I'm really starting to wonder how are they going to fix this? I mean, we we started talking about Nick Suzuki. He had pretty good numbers personally on the PK, but do you really want to play him even more than he already is? I mean, some of it is on the goalies. Uh, I've always said that Samuel Montembeau was great five on five, but... He struggled on the PK, and this year again, I mean, I look at the numbers. Jake Allen is 868 on the PK, Primo is 857, mm-hmm. and Monty is 810. So that's not going to cut it, but it's not just a goalie. No, it's not just a goalie. But although, as a team, at five on four or four on five, uh, the Canadians are sixth worst, mm-hmm. save percentage-wise, in the NHL. And the teams ahead of them, I mean, Winnipeg's surprising, but I mean, Ottawa's the worst, 79.84. Yeah, Corpus Allo's. Chicago's, Corpus Allo's been, wow. It's weird that Pierre Dorian would target a goalie on the free agent market and he turned out to be not good. It's strange. <laughs> it's never happened uh, before. <laughs> it's never happened before. It's so odd. Um, 80.47 Chicago, 83.04 Carolina, 83.57 Winnipeg, which is weird. 83.94 Edmonton, which is not weird. And that's Montreal. Yeah. 83.98. But aside from that, I mean, expected goals against Canadians are fifth worst in the NHL. 9.07 per 60. Goals against per 60, second worst in the NHL, 10.2. So it's not, it's a combination of things. They've given up roughly one more goal than expected goal. So, yes, the goaltending's been bad, but they're giving up chances at an unsustainable rate, a rate that's not going to lead to any lasting success. Um, and it's it's hard not to think it's – I don't want to say it's tactical because they're playing the system that basically every team in the NHL now plays, this 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 the fronting diamond system. Yeah. Um, but they are slow to adjust – to teams that attack it at its weak points. Um, Minnesota actually did this in Montreal too, uh, but they have players like Kaprizov and Boldy in particular who can be really dangerous coming from the goal line. Like, And that's where, that's the weak point of the diamond is 
obviously where there's only one player, you know? So if a diamond is, you have a player up top who's generally responsible for that top defenseman, you have a player basically more or less in each circle that's trying to take away the flank one-timer, which is the most dangerous shot on a power play, but then you have one guy left to cover kind of that those low jam plays. And that's the play that you kind of give up when you play a diamond, a fronting diamond system. And when teams start to attack from that area, that low jam goal line area, I find the Canadians don't have an answer for that. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't adjust to it quick enough. And so, and it's, it's not a surprise. Like they know that that's where teams would have to attack. Um, but they just don't, I mean, I felt like the, the, I felt like the wild were getting to the net from there quite consistently, like quite often. So it's, I mean, it's a work in progress, but it's, it doesn't seem to be progressing, <laughs> to be honest with you. It's just work right now. It's, there's no progress happening. No, no. And and I feel like, because I see progress on, on the power play. There are some times where they won't set up and it's going to be bad. But generally speaking, I feel like they're getting somewhere with Suzuki playing at the goal line. Because, as you just mentioned, those the passes from the goal line to the slot mm-hmm. are among the most effective ways to generate chances in today's NHL on the power play and the Canadians struggle defensively to counter that. But I, right now, I don't know if it's just a matter of finding better personnel. Uh, it might, it might be just that because they don't have a ton of guys that, that you say, Oh, they're, they're specialists. You know, that, that team doesn't have, uh, Barkley Goudreau or, 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 or Gord, let's say, you know, who's, who's a very good penalty killer. I mean, Evans could be that guy, you know, like you, I always, I thought Evans could be that guy and maybe he could still be that guy if you were properly surrounded. But I think he's potentially one of those specialists that you're referring to. Yeah. He better be like, that's going to like for, for the, for, for the longevity of his career, if he needs to get that identity, he needs to get known as that guy yeah. as a face-off winner and a penalty killer. And You're not going to get known as that guy going whatever he went last night. What did he do? One and nine in the face-off circle. So, I mean, it's, listen, that's kind of a one-off. It's not really something that he's, uh, that he does regularly, but, you know, being a guy who wins, draws, and kills penalties is the way that Jake Evans is going to get another contract in this league. And so, whether that's in Montreal or elsewhere, but yeah, other than him, I agree with you. And and Armia, who, Normally is very good, just wasn't last night, but is normally a very good penalty killer. They don't have that guy. Do you think Armias could be bought out? Because it's really not a big number for the next two years if they choose to do that. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think that, I, honestly, I think, well, actually, if, if they wait till, yeah, if they wait till this season, yeah. Uh, there, yeah. There's only one. It's, they're just one buying year one year, one year left, yeah. I, I because there's one year left, and if the Kings are willing to eat some of it, I think they might be able to trade them for nothing. Obviously, you wouldn't really get anything in return, and you might even have to take a a, a bad contract back on top of eating money. I don't know, but um, I do think they would explore that. Uh, they would explore that to its fullest yeah. before before buying them out because that's they've already. They've already dipped into next year with Petrie and the retention. Um, 
I think he had to, you know, I think because they got a pretty good draft pick and to Smith uh, and which, what Kent called a prospect though, Nathan Ligari's no, is it Nathan Ligari? No, no. Who else? They, oh, Lindstrom. They got Lindstrom. Who's you know already proven to be a useful depth defenseman. Um, they were willing to do that, but I think there's, there's a, there's a, there's, there's already a, a leeriness because they had to do it once. And I don't know the extent to which they would want to do it again. Because if they and bought out Armia instead of, instead of, uh, you know, uh, keeping some money, uh, holding some money in a, on a, in a trade, that's less than 900,000 for next year and roughly mm-hmm. 1.25 million the year after. So it's, it's, it's almost for a team that's in their situation financially. It's almost inconsequential. Uh, yes and no. I mean, in the sense that I think by 2025-26, the Canadians would like to be somewhat competitive. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and that would still be the last year of Carey Price's contract. So they're still working. They would still be working in a very delicate financial environment. Um, yes, Carey Price's contract provides salary relief, but it does make it complicated. So I think just adding an extra one point, close to 1.3 million, um, when you don't necessarily have to, would be would be preferable to avoid because the one thing is that that is the Petrie will be off the books by then. That's, that's, that's the first season. They won't have the Petrie retention on the books. So you could replace it. And, and if you look at it that way, then you're, you're basically adding a million in cap space because Armia would be about a million less than Petrie is right now. So um, Petrie is 2.343 for the next two years. That's it. Yeah, which well, this, so this year, and, this and year, next would year. be about one point. This year, next this year. year, this year, next year. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So one more year, and then that last army a year, the one point three. So you'd have one million dollar difference. But yeah, again, it's I, I just don't. I think they would do everything in their power to move them, but maybe if they can't, I mean, he, this man traded Mike Hoffman. Like, just keep that in mind. This guy traded Mike Hoffman. I know. I know. Anything is possible. (laughs) Anything is possible. That's true. All right. Hey, man, it's Friday, which means Future Friday. We need a jingle. We need a jingle for Future Friday. We don't even have a regular jingle. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We'll need two then. We'll we'll need two jingles, yeah. Call a friend. Call a friend. So so the World Juniors are at our doorstep. We spoke Mm -hmm. about Owen Beck last week. Great beginning of tournament for him. He was a player of the game for Canada against Switzerland. Uh, but it's uh, it's time we talk about our boy, Lane Hudson. Yeah, uh, let's talk about Lane Hudson. He's going to be a very important piece of what's looking like a really high-powered U.S. team. Yeah. Yeah. And, One of the eight you know, returnees on that team. Yeah, exactly. You know, should be anchoring the top pair. I think he's been playing with uh, Chesley, if I'm not mistaken. Right, Chesley, yeah. yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so I had a chance uh, I had a chance yesterday to talk to Jay Pandolfo, his coach at BU. Yeah. And just to kind of, you know, give 
our listeners and my readers um, a sense of what's happening in a season in BU. And the first thing Pandolfo said, because I asked, I was like, listen, you know, I can look at stats and I can even watch games and, and I can see that he's offensively that he has not skipped a beat. So what are you seeing that is most improved from once from his freshman year to his sophomore year immediately went to his defensive game. And, and, and what's interesting is, is that, you know, he's getting stronger. He is, but yeah. he's still never going to be a guy who's going to, who's going to out muscle guys in front of the net or is going to, you know, out muscle people in board battles or what have you. So, you know, he said he's, he's really learning how to use leverage much better. He's getting under sticks a lot better. He's, uh, you know, he's avoiding battles better. Um, but it's, it's interesting to him how, how Lane's offensive s- skill set he's learning to apply it to defense, you know, the quickness, the deception, all that stuff. He's like, you know, he'll, you know, he'll, he'll just, he'll just be, he'll just be smarter. He'll outsmart people in battles basically. And, and then once he's managed to free the puck, uh, his ability to just skate it out is another in, in Pandolfo's mind is another kind of defensive skill, you know, is that you can, if you can one man break it out or make that, make that really heady pass that, that, that relieves the pressure. So, you know, the one thing he said, so I would watch for that during this tournament. Um, But he said, he was like, I have no doubt in my mind that offensively Lane Hudson is not going to have any problem playing the NHL. And I was like, well, yeah, well, I think a lot of people would, see that already mm-hmm. the, the issue is the defensive play and he's like yeah i know and i'm tell what i'm telling you is that he is so committed to improving it and has already shown so much improvement that i have less and less doubt that this is going to be an issue in the nhl so and and he said that every monday lane goes into uh goes into the coach's offices sits down with one of their assistant coaches goes over the weekend's games looks at all the defensive plays he made, how he can improve them. So yeah, he's he committed to it. last year too. It's, exactly. It's, he's, he's been doing – well, really that's just how he's that. – that's how he's wired, you know. Yeah. And so so when you're watching him in, in the tournament, my suggestion would be instead of focusing on the dazzling head and shoulder fakes and everything he does in the offensive zone, watch how low he gets when he enters a battle or when he's, when he's, when he's trying to box someone out because Gandalf was like he doesn't box people out because he can't. So he just, you know, he just gets their stick tied up and he gets under them, you know? And so that's something that I would watch out for in the tournament if you're watching Team USA play. But I'm curious to see how he's going to fare on the bigger ice, though, because that's, he, I think Hudson recognizes that it's harder to defend in, in on the larger sheet. So it's, you know, when it comes to angles, reading or closing plays, killing plays and, and closing gaps and whatnot, having a bigger, bigger ice will present it its share of, of, of challenges that he's not normally mm-hmm. facing when he's playing for BU. So if he, if he does well in that environment, that will really bode well, I think, because it will not only show that he's capable of defending against like higher competition, but also that he's got great adaptability too. Yeah. And really there are fewer, in one sense it could help him because there are fewer board battles on the big mm-hmm. race. You're, you're, you do play off, you know, you do kind of play off, you're supposed, you should at least, um, not be as aggressive getting the puck and really 
sort of containing more than more than battling along the board. So maybe that'll maybe that'll help him. But um, but listen, it's not you know he's played on big ice before, and and every other aspect of his game benefits from being on big ice. So, but yeah, defensively, I, I agree. It's uh, it's just something to watch for. It's it's really it's it, it is it's the one it's the big unknown in Lane Hudson's trans transferability from that level to this level. And um, but yeah, I mean, Pandolfo is just kind of expressing. I think he has less doubt now that he'll be able to make that because not only because his defensive game is improving, but the process through which Lane is improving it is that's transferable to the NHL. Right. Yeah. You know, so, but just the that. fact remains though, that it's his transition skills, the, 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 the playmaking ability, stuff like that, that will continue to impress and excite people and make, mm -hmm. you know, Make look, uh, make them look forward to the future. The future could, could come very soon, you know. We, uh, I think, it, you know, Kent Hughes is on the record saying that he's he hopes to sign Hudson at the end of BU season, uh, yeah. you know, which means a contract and maybe a couple of couple of games in Montreal or even more than that, depending on how far BU is going to go uh, in this uh, for the rest of the season, but. Uh, It's, it's going to be very soon, he's going to be yet another left-handed defenseman who's part of that group. And he could, if he shows that sort of, of dynamism uh, or those dynamic uh, capabilities at the pro level, he's going to force the hand of the Canadian and say, okay, well, what do we do with the other guys? Because he's not someone... 100%. Who, he's not 100%. someone who's going to, to spend four years in Laval. I don't think so because I, the thing about Hudson and I've, and I've talked to a couple of people on the Canadians about this and it's not, the question is whether he makes it or not. Mm -hmm. If he makes it, he will be a star. Like that's kind of how they see it. Like we don't know if he can play in the NHL, but if he can, we're going to have a special player. Right. There doesn't seem to, they don't seem to believe that there's any gray area here. Like it's really either he can play in the NHL Or he can't. If it's door number one, then we have a star defenseman on our hands. We, we, we. I shouldn't say it so definitively. I don't think anyone has told me that that definitively. But that that's the belief that, that we have a potential star defenseman on our hands, assuming he can defend at the NHL level and play 20 minutes a night and not hurt the team and not have the the plus minus. And I don't mean the stat plus minus, but the plus being the positive the positive impact on the game versus the negative impact on the game and have that be um, a deficit, having a deficit there. I mean, that's really so okay. if he can just kind of break even defensively, then he should be able to play in the NHL. Like, that's really the bar for him is that. Right. Um, the, but at the same time, I mean, we see nine in, nine out right now, Jaden Struble playing 14 minutes a night. Before that, it was Jack Eye who was not playing more than that. Uh, uh -huh. the third pairing, is there a world where Hudson, if he's got a, a certain level of defensive liability, but he can showcase his offensive, uh, you know, uh, capabilities and be like a power play co quarterback and be on the first unit guy, couldn't he turn into a specialist and be like, You're a third pairing, dazzling guy. I know it's out of fashion a little bit. You don't see that all too often right now in the NHL. No, because he's a he's a play driver. 
I mean, it's not just that he's he's a dazzling power play guy. Like he he drives play. He mm-hmm. he can he gets the puck from his end to the offensive zone, and then once it's in the offensive zone, he makes sure it stays there. You want that guy at five on five as long as he's able to hold his own. And it, like honestly, like the bar is not very high for him to be able to hold his own, quote unquote. Like Eric Carlson for years was a so-so defender, but his yeah. his offensive skills made it so that not only was he producing at the other end, but he was getting pucks out of his zone and getting it to the other end because of his skating, because of his vision, because of everything. But you would never look at Eric Carlson and say, wow, that's what a defender. You know, <laughs> or no Quinn Hughes, said that. that matter. Or Quinn Hughes. The Quinn Hughes, I think, yeah. Yeah, Quinn Hughes is the guy I look at. At the yeah. beginning, I think now it's now it's quite different. But, yeah. but he's a guy I look at when he, I think of Lane is – you know, Quinn Hughes is going to be is going to be at the award ceremony this year. He will be a finalist for the Norris Trophy, whether he wins it or not, I don't know, but mm-hmm. he will be there. Um, it would have been inconceivable, even like five years ago, maybe seven years ago, that someone who looks like Quinn Hughes would be a finalist for the Norris Trophy. But that's where we are. And so now, yeah. are the Canadian will the Canadians be able to take it to another extreme and make it an even smaller guy in Lane Hudson? I, I think so, but honestly, like it's. Let's see what he does in this tournament. Like it's, it's really what's going to be the most compelling part is to, to see how he reacts in the defensive end, um, and what improvements he's made there. Because that's really, that's really the only thing preventing him from becoming an NHL star is is if he can hold his own in that area. So the name is Peter Anderson. And the year was 1985. That's the record for most points by defensemen at the World Juniors. And mm. Anderson had 14 points in seven games. Uh, Alex Pietrangelo had 12 points in six games. He comes in second place. So, you know, uh, I'm, 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 I wonder if Hudson would have a chance at that record and end up with more than 14 points. That'd be quite yeah, a feat. I think he's got it. Got a shot. He's got a yeah. shot. He's going to yeah. get the usage. He's going to get the. I mean, and the fire with the firepower they have up front. Uh, I think he's got a shot at it. That team's going to score a lot of goals. Like that's there's no doubt about it. Lane Hudson's going to be on the ice a lot, so he's got a chance. Yeah. Right now, he's uh, in terms of points per game in the NCAA. He's second to a guy who's actually draft eligible uh, this year. So uh, Boyum, uh, Zeev Boyum. Yeah. 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 He's, he's looking, he's looking like a pretty nice prospect. He's actually on the, he's on the world junior team. team. He actually yeah, made the, sure. made the world junior team as a draft eligible. So yeah. yeah. But obviously, you know, Lane Hudson is not the only Canadian prospect on that team. Jacob Fowler is going to be in a, a battle for the, the starting goaltending job. It sounds like they're not really going to know who that guy is until they get to maybe even the medal round. Possibly mm-hmm. like they might, they might, I think they're going to give him and Trey Augustine some runway. And as you, as you reported, um, you know, Fowler's probably more invested than normal in this goaltending battle because of who it's, who he's up against and who got drafted first at the last draft. So um, we'll see there. There's, 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 there's two really compelling stories for Canadians fans uh, on team ESA this year. And, and they're two of the more, um, well, the goaltending battle is is probably the most compelling story there. That the, who's going to come out of it? With there's really no wrong answer there. They're both no. great goalies, um, but yeah. And then Lane Lane's chase for that record 
is, you know, That'd Canes are in a pretty good spot on that team. Yeah, for sure. So as you said, on top of the show, uh, we're taking a break from uh, the notebook for a little bit. We're going to be back on uh, Friday, January the 5th. So uh, we both wish all of our listeners and viewers uh, a Merry Christmas, great, great holiday period, and Happy oh. New Year too. Or as um, Eddie Murphy used to say in Trading Places, Merry New Year! <laughs> <laughs> So, it's coming to America that you're talking about, not trading no, places. No, 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 trading places. You said they're trading places, okay. For sure, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, uh, yeah. He just, he he's, said it uh, in he's coming dressed to a, as an African dude going to on the train. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Yeah, 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 it, it sorry. Came, I forgot. It, it, was yeah. an earlier, it was an earlier character. Yeah, it's yeah. A, there's a whole sequence on the train, which is rather funny. So that's it. Well, enjoy the downtime. And you, you yeah. started by explaining us your planes, trains, and automobile situation. So make sure you come back to Montreal on time. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna again take the train to the airport tomorrow. So wish me luck. I think <laughs> I have a better understanding of the Chicago train system now. Uh, but yeah, I will be. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll see you all in the new year. Thanks so much for listening or watching, you know, this new, uh, this new project that we've started with the SDPN people, it's been going really well and uh, wouldn't be possible without you guys watching and listening. So thank you for that. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year.